Welcome, everybody, to the High Action Podcast. My name is John Story, and I am joined here with my cohorts in the New West guitar group, Perry Smith and Will Brom. And on today's episode of High Action, as we are winding up season two with our Origins series, today we will meet and greet and discuss Perry Smith. But before we do that, I would just like to remind everybody, uh, our podcast, our sponsor today, is brought to you by Henriksen Amps. And Henriksen Amplifiers uh, designs and manufactures high-quality analog musical instrument amps in Arvada, Colorado. They are also the host this year of the Rocky Mountain Archtop Festival in Old Town, Arvada, Colorado, from September 9th to the 11th, uh, which is going to be awesome. New West is actually one of the featured groups this year, so be sure to get your tickets, your reservations for that. Um, there's going to be some great jazz guitarists and arch top makers there. Um, and so, uh, yeah, visit the Henriksen Amplifiers website for more information. Uh, all of us use the Bud, the Blue, and a variety of their amplifiers. And a friendly reminder, use promo code HIGHACTION for a discount on amps, speakers, cables, T-shirts, and also domestic shipping is always included with your order. So be sure to visit HenriksenAmplifiers.com. Hey, John. Maybe yeah. We'll, maybe we'll get another viral video. Yeah. <laughs> Do videos go viral on Facebook anymore, though, man? I don't know. You know, no, that you was... just get viruses. Yeah. Oh, hey. Seriously. <laughs> That's um, yeah. That was one of the biggest surprises, I think, of, you know, certainly of at least my, my social media career was just sitting down in, what was that, 2014, 2013, something like that? No, I think it was 2015. 2015. Yeah. Visiting the Hendrickson amp shop out in Colorado just on a on a whim and you and I playing Scrapple from the Apple and it blowing up on Facebook thanks to Peter Hendrickson. But like who would have thought, you know, all the time and energy that we've spent on recordings over the years that just sitting down and playing a tune casually would be something that caught fire for us. This is very surprising. Yeah. Yeah, I think weren't we weren't that day we were at was the first time you know what it might have been more like 2013 or 14 Perry because um I think that was when the Bud amp was still kind of being prototyped and they had finished a prototype of it and we were both playing through it. You know, yeah. I remember being so blown away that that amp was that loud and that small and just I remember thinking man when when people get their hands on these everybody's going to want one of these amps. It's um, it was very like you know ironic because we used to play through the same amp years ago when we first met playing at the Ragazzi room by USC yeah. and we'd have so many issues because one of us would be playing rhythm and turning down and it would turn down the guy that was also playing his solo, yeah. <laughs> but not with the bud. <laughs> the old polytone, man. Well, that's a good transition here actually for everybody listening. So, you know, New West Guitar Group and Perry Smith, you know, I'm, we've all been peppering into the interviews, some discussions about our history and what's really fun is we're coming up now, Perry. I met you 20 years ago this August, because that was August 20th, 2002. So we're coming up on 20 years, man, which is at, which is just bananas. And you, by that point, were already at USC. And I had actually heard about you when I was up at the Port Townsend workshop that summer before, like Gerald Clayton, some of my friends who were up there, Matt Dunkel, who you knew was tell I was asking them about who are the guitar players who are going to be down at USC that I'm going to meet. And they said, Oh yeah, you'll meet Perry Smith. And 
And man, it's just it's just bizarre. Here we are talking to each other on a computer today. <laughs> I know. A lot of things we wouldn't have predicted, but yeah. Um, yeah. certainly we had a lot of things in common. You know, that's like right. A lot yeah, of the and, you know, same uh, values in music and just interests in music and guitar. And I think we did like a little jam session in yes. the practice rooms, which I think then was called SSM or was it called no, PIC? PIC. But before yeah. that, it was called something else. SSM, Safety yeah. Security Management. <laughs> music which always they gets... tested bicycle helmets in. Yeah. Uh, the uh, music always gets the most random buildings at universities. Yeah. But anyway, I remember some one of the funniest things. I still have this vivid memory of after we played a tune, you said to me, you're like, huh, you use a lot of upstrokes. For some uh -huh. reason, that like has like stuck with me for like 20 years. I was like, <laughs> I guess I do, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's fascinating, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it was cool for me because meeting you and like I just as close as the Bay Area is to Oregon, I hadn't really met a lot of Bay Area young musicians yet. I knew of Charles Altura and Julian Lodge and a lot of those guys from that area. Yeah. And 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 then I I hadn't met actually got to have a lot of hang time with them because not a lot of them did the Stanford workshops in the summer. But um, for our listeners, just to give give everybody some background, like we've been doing for all of the members, Perry grew up in the Bay Area in, in a beautiful part of Marin called Tiburon. And um, so your Harry, your dad plays guitar too, right? And kind of got was sort of a folky and was kind of somebody that sort of in, influenced you early on to to play some guitar around the house, right? Yes, he doesn't play much anymore, really. <laughs> Um, but certainly back in the day that, that was his thing, you know, like living in San Francisco in the sixties and the early seventies and just trying to be like a, you know, like a hippie, <laughs> like a professional yeah. hippie. It very much reminds me of like, you know, now what you see in places like Los Angeles and New York, where you see the hipsters, um, that are out, you know, kind of doing their thing in their twenties and early thirties. But then they also have another job that they're doing in a different kind of profession. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, my dad played guitar. He had one around the house. That's really why I got into it. And I remember he gave me a book of Bob Dylan songs and Peter Paul and Mary songs when I started playing. And he was just like, "Here you go. Like this is, this is a good way to start learning." And that's still very like foundational for me. You know, just um, hearing folk music and singing along with it and. In recent years, my dad and I have done a lot of that where like when we get together, we just like sing and play through folk tunes and it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Isn't that funny? We had that my my same thing like we talked about. My mom, like we, a lot of Peter Paul and Mary, a lot of John Denver, a lot of a lot of folks folk music. And um I imagine just growing up in the Bay Area, I mean, it's such an artistically rich area. There's so much going on and festivals and Great music stores too. I mean, wasn't there a little guitar shop? You probably hung out at like Bananas at Large in San Rafael and some of those yep. kinds of places, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. It was um, really a pretty wonderful place to try to get a music education. Um, when I reflect back on it, I think, wow, I was so lucky. Like uh, there was there was good music and high school programs. So when I was in high school, I was able to connect with people. Even in middle school, I was able to connect with people that. Um, really helped shape and guide me through the high school years. And uh, SF Jazz had just started their uh, educational program, and I was in the very first like all-star band 
actually with Charles Altura's brother, Tom Altura. Yeah. And there was just a lot of good kind of uh, music education happening. And the Bay Area itself also has a wonderful sort of tradition of um, kind of like folky music too. You have the Grateful Dead that came out of there. You have a lot of acoustic guitar players. Um, you have uh, Carlos Santana that's based there as well. So just a lot of good stuff to kind of draw on um, yeah. as a young musician and, and be inspired with. And then clearly there was sort of this jazz festival circuit and uh, the Berkeley High School guys with Charles Altura and Ambrose, Ambrose Akamusuri and uh, Jonathan Finlayson and uh, those guys kind of ruled the roost of all those yeah. festivals because that was an incredible combo to see play. Uh, and that was really inspirational. And then, you know, I was in this group with kids with, from Santa Fe High School. Um, John, you probably remember like J.J. Byers, Seth Paris, and Bram Kinchlow. Yeah. I mean, those guys are, were such incredible musicians at a young age. Um, and so they really shaped my uh, kind of upbringing uh, on guitar. At that time, yeah, and and did you um did you attend Stanford in high school? You did, right? I did, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I think two or three times, and that's where I got to meet Bruce Foreman, and that really opened up a lot of doors um, mm -hmm. for me as well. And yeah, so there was just a host of people like that um, that that really helped me. Right, and you know, um, I think I remember you telling me this too. But so out of high school, you were looking at SC, of course, where you ended up. But you yeah. were also looking at some schools out on the East Coast, right? Because you were thinking about going to New York right away out of high school. Yes, um, I think it came down to New England and Manhattan, also yeah. Miami, University of Miami, and uh, SC was the only place that offered me any kind of scholarship, any kind of money, and. It was also just a little closer, and you know, being from California, uh, it seemed like just the right fit for me. And New York, you know, was rather intimidating. Uh, I think as a 17-year-old to like fly all the way across the country and and go somewhere where I really didn't know much about. And USC was really interesting to me on the surface. Like you had six different guitar teachers and you had this like really wonderful university with the monk institute there and a thriving jazz department and i thought yeah this seems like the place and really really glad i made that decision in hindsight because um i had a lot of friends you know the people that i connected with in high school that ended up going to new york and inevitably they struggled so much to work, especially right after college, because the scene in New York, as I can tell you now, having lived here for 12 years, it's so competitive. There's just so many musicians here. So your ability to work, uh, especially when you're like an 18 year old or like a 20 year old, 22 year old, you know, coming out of college, like it's a lot harder. And I gained a lot of good experience in Los Angeles because, you know, it seemed like I remember talking about this with you, John. Like by the time I was a junior or senior, a lot of the things I was doing professionally outside of school were conflicting with um, the schoolwork that I was trying to finish up at USC. Right. So that transition, although it was difficult, at least I had opportunities. Like I had teaching gigs, I had regular playing gigs, I was working with different artists um, and collaborating with singers and other people and gaining a lot of good professional experience that I probably wouldn't have gained if I had gone to New York in mm -hmm. the same way. 
you know mm-hmm. totally yeah and and um yeah and and like being being that you were so close to, L, to LA I mean what well, being from the bay area relatively close to LA um it's kind of cool man because as we got to know each other and as we formed new west it kind of was a discussion right away in the summertime that I was from Oregon you're from the bay and we're like hey you know what maybe I've know some gigs we could do if we book some gigs in the Bay, why don't we drive up and we'll stay at our parents' folks and kind of just make this little tour? And, uh, man, I'm so glad we had that opportunity because that planted the seed to not only go out and hustle and find your own performance opportunities with your own band, which we were doing right away. Um, but, you know, we had a pretty solid network of people who were really supporting us at that time in between, you know, some of the places we stayed at. I mean, your parents' beautiful home up there or the home up in, in the Tahoe area where we would just get to hang for a few days and barbecue and work on music and stuff. And, and you having a lot of the connections in the Bay for that and also having kind of a built-in audience for our family to come in the summertime and and hear us hear us play. So it's it's yeah, I mean, I feel like there's kind of a lot of really cool coincidences that happen. The fact that you're from the Bay and that we were all just kind of lining that up. And that that really led to what, we were, what we've been doing with New West Guitar Group. But you've also, in addition to New West, which we're going to talk about next week, you know, you've also led your own, you were also leading a lot of your own groups, even in college and out of college and here in L.A. I remember you were you were pursuing a lot of your own trio and quartet stuff back when... Um, the Blue Whale opened in 2009 and, and right when you moved to New York. But um, do you remember some of those projects that you were working on in Los Angeles aside New West Guitar Group at that time? Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I remember like one of my first big gigs was at the old Catalinas and they had their Young Artists series. And, right. you know, a New West founding member, Matt Roberts, who did a lot of that, um, kind of inspired me early on to kind of get my own thing going. And right. so, I mean, it was kind of rough at first. Like, I remember a gig at the old Catalinas and, like, Pat Kelly came out and Barry's Y and all these guys supporting me. And afterwards, they're like, yeah, it sounded good, but, like, you know, you really got to make sure you keep your guitar in tune. You know, just, like, basic yeah. stuff like that that you kind of have to go through when you're leading your own gigs because there's, like, so much pressure to get all your music organized and make sure everyone's ready to go in your band and... So those experiences were were really good. Um, and again, I go back to like L.A. being a more welcoming scene for me to kind of gain experience um, at that time was, was crucial. So yeah, I was trying to push my own quartet and trio as well. And then uh, also getting the chance to work with really great vocalists. Like I worked a lot with Kathleen Grace when I was at USC, who's a terrific singer, and um, Patrice Quinn who I worked a lot with down in Hermosa Beach at the Lighthouse and, and those places. Um, she's a fantastic singer, somebody who I think is working a lot with Kamasi Washington now. And so those those experiences were really, like, valuable, you know? Right. Yeah, and, you know, as we're kind of hopping around here, um, you know, I, I would definitely want to play for our listeners some of your, your music, too. Um the instrument that you have always had as long as I've known you that's really become kind of your thing is that Blonde 175. And go, tell us a little bit about when when you got that. I think you you told me once that you bought that in the Vibro King kind of around the same time and when you were right out of high school or when you were in high school. No, there's slightly different time frames, but um, 
you know, one of the things I would do, my dad, we would go around to like different guitar stores uh, and just play guitars and stuff like that. It was a, a period of that, which was really cool. And I remember we just went to a guitar center in San Francisco and there was that 175 off the rack. And prior to that, I was playing like a PV Predator and I was in jazz band and stuff. And, and I think my dad got wind that like, this isn't really a jazz guitar, but like, you know, I, you know, so I think he was just trying to support me and all that. And his thing was always like, okay, well, like, you know, I'll lend this to you, but you gotta, you gotta work to pay it back. You know, <laughs> I'm very, right. you know, uh, in hindsight, very like grateful that, you know, he kind of like set those good boundaries for me, but yeah, not, not knowing anything at the time, buying that 175. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I remember he also got a feedback destroyer. <laughs> at the time for me with that guitar yeah. because the guy i think the salesman just gave him like a total upsell you know it was like sure. oh well if you're getting the if you're getting an arch top you're gonna have feedback issues so you gotta buy this unit this rack unit it's a feedback destroyer <laughs> which basically just like sucks the eq and tone out of your guitar and i would not <laughs> recommend that to anybody but that's hilarious uh yeah yeah so it just destroyer. i stuck with it and uh you know my hands kind of grew into that guitar and then getting to USC, you know, seeing Diorio play the 175 um, kind of cemented my commitment to that because I was so inspired by him. Uh, and yeah, I've just stuck with it ever since. And, um, you know, it needs a little bit of a tune-up right now. I, I, as I look back at it, I've got some ringing issues. Um, so I guess, I don't know, I just can't shake it, you know. It's just like this thing that I've... yeah. I've um, connected with and developed a sound on and a, a technique with. And uh, I have a lot of other guitars, and I think I'll probably continue to buy a few more throughout my career, but that will probably always be a home base for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a great sound. And, you know, just so everybody can listen here, and before we just speak a little bit also on USCM Diorio, I wanted to play a track from your live in Brooklyn record called Premonition, where there's a little phrase you do in the middle of here that made me think of joe and just your tone on this is is well it always is really great but this i thought this you know and thank you for suggesting this too perry so let's let's check out premonition here <laughs> Thank you. 
Yeah, and, and, and some of those just little the little turns, like thinking of Joe and and I know we've we of course everybody got to meet Joe during his interview with us, and um, sadly we lost Joe earlier this year, and it's been a lot of time for us to reflect on him. But I just thought you could speak a little bit on how Joe impacted your learning in in L.A. Um, and kind of how that really was kind of a, a time where you were sort of coming into your to your sound a little bit, working with him and and everything. Yeah, gosh, I mean, definitely, definitely uh, hard to kind of put into words, but, um, you know, the first word that always comes to mind is just like inspiration and confidence, because I guess those are two words, but, <laughs> you know, you'd, you'd connect with him in his room or whether it was like across the street eating and hanging, and he just couldn't be more encouraging, couldn't be more supportive, and... Um, that just goes such a long way for young musicians. I mean, as, as, a, as a player now who's also teaching a lot, I really see the value in giving young students confidence because mm-hmm. there's so many things that um, you're dealing with when you try to slay the dragon that is jazz. I mean, it's, it's a huge mountain to climb when you're young. And uh, at times, you know, you can be pretty insecure about like, okay, how do I pull this off? How do I sound good? Especially guitar. Guitar has a lot of unique challenges when it comes to jazz music. And Diorio would just always fill me with a lot of uh, encouragement and gave me a lot of confidence. And then he would play his ass off and it would be super inspiring. And, you know, he'd like mop the floor with me in lessons and I would just be like, whoa, like how do I, you know, how do I sound like that? And it would just drive me and drive me to keep practicing. Um, so... That's the that's sort of the main takeaway. But what I will say after years and years of reflecting on this is that, you know, Joe's approach in some ways was also limiting, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm almost embarrassed to talk about this, but like he didn't play a lot with rhythm sections. You know, he didn't play a lot with horn players like he didn't back up a lot of vocalists um, too much. And so he had a long career where he did a lot of that, but certainly when John, you and I were hanging with him, I mean, his bread and butter was like guitar with guitar or guitar with mm-hmm. bass, you know, or like a mm-hmm. quiet trio with a drummer playing brushes. And so when you're trying to assimilate his language and his influence in like a modern jazz group, it can be different, you know what I mean? So part of my journey with Diorio was kind of understanding how I needed to like evolve and grow in my own way through what he was teaching me. And, um, yeah, that, that was a process that has taken decades. That's right. Yeah. And I I remember, um, you prepping to go to New York in 2009 and just how much you were playing with, with Sam and a lot of, and Schnell here in LA over at the found places like the foundry and really playing out a lot and, and digging in. And I remember you talking about trying to, you know, pump up the way you played because drummers played so differently on the East Coast than they do on the West Coast. And, and um, yeah, I'd love for Will to kind of take the reins here so we can hear from him today and maybe discuss your move to New York around that time and lead us up to, to, to present day here. Yeah. What's up, Perry? Yo, G, what you got for me, man? <laughs> um, well, first, that is an interesting point you make about, I think, any teacher. There's There's a lot you can learn, and then there's things that in hindsight, you recognize that maybe you don't have to use the word limiting, but, but 
no one's perfect, right? And you just you start to see that in anyone that you may have studied with. But when you did move to the East Coast, you went to the new school, correct? Actually, uh, NYU. NYU, I'm sorry, NYU. And do you, were you, would you have moved to New York if you hadn't started grad school? Or was that kind of essential for you to feel comfortable moving across the country? I don't know, but I had an opportunity there because a guy mm-hmm. who went to USC who got his doctorate was a now had become an assistant professor at NYU. And I was out in New York with Kathleen Grace on some gigs, and we did a clinic there. And he said, hey, man, you should come here. We can get you a GTA, a graduate t- teaching assistantship. It's a good deal, and it's a way for you to move to New York and have some income. I, and I thought, hmm. And the next fall, I made it happen. So, mm-hmm. you know, NYU, you know, was was like a really good choice for me because I wouldn't have been able to get those same teaching opportunities at New School in Manhattan. I would have paid a lot more money to have those experiences. And there was just an incredible amount of faculty at NYU that I could draw from. Like, it was nuts. Like, I got there and I was studying with George Garzon, playing in a combo led by Joe Lovano. And it was just like, okay, I've arrived. I was hanging with John Schofield, you know, studying with Ralph Alessi, Kenny Werner. It was it was really heavy. and But it was also a bit of a ticking time bomb because that income ran out after two years. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I really kind of had to work my ass off to figure out how things were going to work after that. And in some ways, I just got lucky. Mm-hmm. How was doing grad school different for you? You know, I, I haven't gone to grad school, so I actually am curious. How was it different for you compared to doing your undergrad? There was really no structure. Like mm-hmm. I could just do, I could kind of set it up however I wanted. I could take whatever classes I wanted. Um, yeah, that was pretty much it. And that's what really attracted me to it um, was that flexibility because I spent four years working in LA after I graduated. So I was not, I was not totally green, you know, like I had professional experience under my belt and I wasn't looking for somebody to kind of like give me a totally structured program, which I felt was more necessary in my undergrad. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't think you need to go to graduate school, man, at this point, unless you really want to like focus on teaching. (laughs) And even then I, I'm not even sure it would help you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so by the time you finished graduate school, was it a fairly seamless transition? Were you gigging a lot and you ha- had a lot of cast that you were playing with? Or was there like an uh, in-between period? Oh, man. Yes and no, to answer that mm-hmm. question. Like, I had a lot of stuff going on being in New York. And um, I, I remember my, my own group was like playing at the Blue Note on like they had these Sunday brunch series where I'd get my own group in there and I was doing some other gigs with people. But I was really like, I don't know what to do. And I had like a little summer tour lined up on the West Coast with the aforementioned Dan Schnell and Sam and I, these guys I'd play with for a lot of years. And I just randomly got an email uh, from Sophie Millman's agent who was a, was a fairly popular jazz singer based in Toronto around that time. This is like mm-hmm. 2011 or something. And they had a whole bunch of dates they wanted me for. And really, like, I got to give a ton of credit to a bass player named Noah Garabedian, who kind of recommended me for that. He also was really influential in 
me getting to NYU because he had gone there a year prior for me. So he kind of like showed me all the ropes. And yeah, Noah has given me a lot of good opportunities since I've been in New York, but he's the reason I got that Sophie Millman gig, which kind of gave me another year and a half of, of income and stuff in New York after grad school, which is what I mean when I say I just got lucky in that respect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, John and I know what it's like kind of balancing be- being a full-time sideman versus a band leader. But I'm curious, what are some of your experiences balancing sideman work, accompanist work versus, you know, making your own live album and being your own band leader with your own trio and quartet? Like perhaps you could talk about the boat gig that's that's kind of legendary now. Yeah. Um, well, I think John said it really well in his episode that like, you know, when when you're a sideman, you're really in service to the to the artist and the band leader and the music that you're playing. It's not really about you, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to the extent that you can make it about you, that's that's a cool thing. Like if you can step out and really showcase yourself in the ways that the uh, music is asking for, then great. But I think you really have to like remember that um, that it's even more from just a musical standpoint that like you're in, you're in service to the band leader. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, that's, I think the main difference when it comes to being a sideman. but to balance it, I think is, is important one for making a living because it's a lot easier to make a living as a sideman than it is as a leader. Mm-hmm. But you know, if you never take on the responsibilities as a leader, then I think it can be a little difficult to, um, you know, truly like realize your artistic vision and your artistic potential and like your artistic sound. And also it gives you a nice appreciation for what it means to be a leader. Yes. You know, which I think helps you in your role as a sideman or as an educator or just in general. So um, they're definitely those two elements I've tried to balance throughout my career, you know, always trying to put time and effort into my own projects while working with other people. And yeah, after I got the Sophie Millman gig, that was very much a sideman situation. When that kind of randomly stopped, I was doing a lot of teaching. And after a year, I said, I'm not gonna do any more teaching, I'm just gonna play. And that, for about the next six or seven years, that's all I did. And then I ended up with a regular gig on the Bateau New York, which a lot of guitar players have done in New York over the years. And that's very much a sideman gig. It's like a fine dining and dancing cruise around the New York Harbor for tourists and people wanting to have a fancy night in New York. And um, it's been a really nice, stable gig for me to rely on um, for a lot of years. And it's very much a sideman situation where I get to play two different guitars, um, play straight ahead half the night, play kind of like pop music the second half of the night, and I also sing backup vocals. So it's quite an experience. (laughs) I imagine you get to play a lot of original music, both yours and other people's. Yeah. And I'd be curious on your insight um, on ways ways that you've learned to quickly be able to both sight-read and interpret and get your own voice in there when you're playing other people's music. Maybe maybe you've rehearsed it before a show, probably not, right? So like what are some experiences or do you have any specific memories of like times where you something really clicked and you, you figured out like, oh, 
you know, here's something I can do or here's something I need to work on. Yeah, definitely. Um, the New York experience has been pretty great for that. And that's a big reason why I moved to New York. You know, my, my aspirations was always to play with a lot of the great musicians that were in this scene. And just last week I played with Patrick Cornelius's octet at Smalls and it's all original writing. And this guy writes his ass off, man. And it's like pretty heavy from a guitar standpoint, like, well, I guess all the instruments, but it's a lot of reading. Um, the way he writes for the guitar is tremendous. And there's some solo moments. And, you know, with if I think about that experience and then a lot of other experiences, like the session that I ran for almost five years and all the original music that was thrown at me every week, um, you kind of have to build your experience with that. And what I've learned at, over time is that the more experience I gained kind of reading and interpreting people's original music, the easier that it got. And something that kind of clicked with me last week uh, with Patrick's music was it's like, oh man, if I see something that might be intimidating or challenging, like a solo section that's got like a ton of harmony and like metric modulations, in the past that would like kind of freak me out. And like I wouldn't know how to sound good over that, like maybe a decade ago or something. Mm -hmm. But now I just sort of like sit back and listen and it just all kind of seems to be a lot easier. Like if I don't try to force myself yeah. musically into it, but just allow it to kind of come to me mm -hmm. uh, and have a little bit more trust in the people I'm playing with, uh, which is easier when you're a little bit more of a seasoned vet. You know, you, you've established your... Um, way of playing and, and you've established your, you know, your way of connecting with the rhythm section. Um, yeah. So I think the message is like, just build experience. It's not always going to be great when you're starting out with that. Um, but that eventually you can get to a point where you can kind of like trust in yourself and the musicians around you and, uh, sound good over difficult music. Kind of comes down to the word react, huh? Yeah, yeah, you know, there's like a um, sort of a, a synergy, I think, when you're playing jazz at some of the highest levels where it's like everybody's just kind of reacting together in this beautiful circle. And I mean, like, mm -hmm. Kenny Werner talks a lot about that. You know, it's like everything I do is a reaction from what the rhythm section is doing and everything that they're doing is a reaction from what I'm doing. Yeah. And yeah, if you can embrace that, um, it's a, it's just like the greatest feeling when you're connecting with musicians like that. Speaking of that, we do have another track of yours that we'd like to play. Yes. This is, this is from, you said your 2018 album. Yeah. Yeah. This is an, a, a quintet album I did. And, uh, it's a bit of a, um, version of Thelonious Monk's epistrophe where I wrote my own head over it and it's called Monk's World. And this is just a little clip of it. Thank you. 
Now, were you using the feedback destroyer on that recording? <laughs> no, I was not. I, man, it's burning. I, I should have. No, um, that's, yeah, I mean, that's five years ago. So recorded in 2017. And um, I can definitely hear like little differences in my sound now. Uh, like my sound feels a little more electric back then. I don't think I was using the wooden bridge, which I've now transitioned away from. But that was also definitely a, a period where it's like uh, that drummer's named Alan Mednard, and he's one of my favorite cats to play with. And, you know, dealing as a guitar player with rhythm sections that play a lot, like especially when you're playing a box, it's like a thing. Yep. And um, yep. that's part of how I wanted to challenge myself uh, and the, and sort of the unique challenges that I faced in New York is just trying to negotiate playing when drummers are just like throwing down behind you. Yep. Uh, I know it happens in all over the world. And I know that LA is a totally different scene than it was when I lived there. But I mean, we can all kind of relate to this, right? Like when you're playing with drummers that play like that, it's like a finding your sonic space as a guitar player is, is a whole thing, man. It's a whole challenge. Well, it's been really fun getting to dive into your time on the East Coast a little bit. Might turn it back to John now. Yeah, well, again, uh, you know, for our origin series, for everybody to get to know all the members of the High Action Podcast slash New West Guitar Group, it's great to great to um, get to talk to you, Perry. Maybe in closing here, do you have any any um, any new projects that you're working on right now? And also maybe share with uh, everybody where they can link up with you on all the social medias. <laughs> yeah, um, the best way to follow. The stuff that I put out um, is on my Instagram and my YouTube page. I'm going to be doing some live streams from my basement studio starting this summer, so I'm excited about that. And uh, you can find where I'm playing around New York on my Instagram. Uh, my trio's playing this coming weekend at a, a wonderful spot called The Campbell. And uh, in terms of other projects other than New West and our podcast, um, I uh, work as a sideman for people like Kiara Itzi, occasionally for Jane Monheit, uh, some other artists in New York named uh, Jason Prover and Stan Killian. So I also do a lot of teaching. I teach for an organization called the Brooklyn Music Factory, which I really enjoy. So if there's anybody locally in New York that wants to study music, uh, you can sign up at Brooklyn Music Factory. And yeah, that's, I think... Um, the main elements that are going on right now. And um, yeah, other than this podcast. Right. That's mm -hmm. right. That's right. Well, we appreciate everybody for tuning in to our origin series. Be sure to stay tuned to learn about the new West guitar group coming up here as we wind up season two of high action. And uh, don't forget to visit our official sponsor, Henriksen amplifiers today and um, stay in touch with us for those who would like the video content and other exclusive videos, other exclusive content. Be sure to sign up on Patreon uh, by searching for new West guitar group slash high action podcast on Patreon. So thanks everybody for joining us today. <laughs>